0: Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test based in Annapolis, Maryland, reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at CLTexam.com. Welcome back to the Anchored Podcast, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test. My name is Soren Schwab, VP of Partnerships here at CLT, and today we are joined by Dr. Daniel Copeland. Dr. Copeland is the Dean of the Graduate School of Classical Education, the Chairman of the Education Department and a professor of education at Hillsdale College, where he regularly teaches courses on English grammar, classical pedagogy, and classic children's literature. Dr. Copeland has received Hillsdale College's Professor of the Year Award and was awarded the Emily Doherty Award for Teaching Excellence. He was a resident scholar at the C.S. Lewis Center in Oxford, England, and he sits on the advisory board for the Institute for Classical Education. He is the author of a new book on teaching titled Trite and True, published by Hillsdale College Press, and he and his wife, live in Jonesville, Michigan, with their three children. Daniel, I can't even express to you how excited I am uh, that you're on Anchor today. Thank you so much. It's my privilege, Soren. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Uh, we like to start the Anchored podcast by talking about our guest's own educational journey. So talk mm. talk to us a little bit about growing up. What kind of education did you receive? Did you, did you enjoy learning uh, as a boy mm. growing up? Yeah, I think... Uh... I enjoyed
1: school a lot, uh, just because I'm, I'm an outgoing person. I'm an extrovert. I enjoy being around people. So, you know, staying at home with mom was fun, but I wanted to be around other, other kids, my own age. So I was really, really drawn to school. Uh, you know, the social aspects of it. Um, I, I, I struggled a little bit in school though, when I was, when I was a child, I had a really severe, um, Uh, you know, like speech impediments. Um, And so I didn't like to speak aloud in class, but I just loved playing on the playground and uh, and, and, and being involved in activities. So my own schooling, you know, um, I can relate to a lot of our students here at Hillsdale College who come from a wide variety of schooling backgrounds. I started out um, in the local public school. Um, I was homeschooled for uh, a few months, um, when I was in the third grade and then transitioned to a private school and then went to a couple of private schools as, as my family kind of moved around. Um, and I concluded my K-12 experience, um, again, where I started, um, at the local public school, it was a different you know school community, but I ended my, my K-12 experience in a public school. So,
0: and then you, you, you got your undergraduate in, in Spanish right? Um, at that point was the, the intent already to, to be a teacher, to be a Spanish teacher, or did that come later?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, um, actually, uh, I'm one of those people who went off to college, not knowing what I wanted to major in. Cause I could see myself, um, you know, pursuing a lot of different fields. And, uh, that was great until, uh, halfway through my junior year. And I had declared, you know, to be a Spanish major, um, you know, simply because I didn't know what I wanted to major in. And I can still remember going home on Christmas break, my junior year of college um, and, and actually telling my dad, I said, you, you know, I, you know, I'm getting a major in Spanish, but I'm, I'm doing that because I don't know what I want to direct my attention into. And, and, and I actually told him this, I said, I can see myself doing a wide variety of things. And he looked at me, he said, you know, Dan, I, I think you'd be a good teacher. And I said, wait, dad, let me correct my statement here. Uh, um, I could see myself doing a lot of things. I am just never going to be a teacher. Um, and he said, well, well, why don't you just at least take one education class and just see what it's like. And so I came home um, or I came back to school um, that spring semester of my junior year and I uh, reconfigured my schedule you know, so that I could take an education class. Um, and so I took this education 101 classes, you was know, like introduction to teaching or, or something like that. And the class was awful, uh, just terrible. Um, but one of the requirements of the class was, I had to go out into a classroom and observe, uh, you, you know, just for 10 hours. And uh, I'm not a procrastinator, I like to get things done right away. I, I don't like to put them off. But this class was so bad, I, I, I just put off this observation until spring break, my junior semester, uh, um, or, or my spring spring semester, of my junior year. So I called up the local Spanish teacher and I just said, "Listen, I need to get ten hours um, um, in a classroom. Uh, can I come in and just observe you? I promise you, I will not be any interruption. I'll be a fly in the wall. I'll do the ten hours. You, you can." you know, sign the document and I'll be gone out of your life for good. So I went into those 10 hours, um, you know, just trying to meet the requirement, no interest in teaching. And it was almost confirmed by the class that I, you know, I'm not going to be a teacher. I went in there thinking I wasn't going to be a teacher. After those 10 hours, I was convinced that I was going to teach for the rest of my life. There was just something about being in a classroom and seeing the work that a teacher does. Um, you know, I had been in plenty of classrooms, but I'd never been in a position where I wasn't the student. And so to be able to look at the the craft and the art, and this teacher was a good teacher, but just being able to examine the relationship, I realized that not only did it draw on my interests, but it also drew on, you know, some of the things I cared about and maybe even a few of the gifts, you know, that I have... Uh, I have been given and I just realized that I was going to be involved in teaching for the rest of my life. So,
0: And here we are. <laughs> yeah, that's well, right. but what, what strikes me about that story is, is, is also that, that, that your father was the one that, mm. that actually pushed you. And I feel like today, I, especially I think in, in the U S there's, there's often mm-hmm. like, don't be a teacher, right? You're not right. paid well, you're not going to be respected and, and you know, and so yeah. that's kind of beautiful to hear that it was quite the opposite that your, that your dad mm-hmm. actually, um, actually encouraged you.
1: Yeah, I you know I thought I knew myself well, and I think I did to to a to a certain extent, you know. But I respect my dad, and 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 he's very wise, and he maybe saw something in me that I didn't even see myself, and and I was glad that you know he kind of pushed me in that direction. So I come by it kind of naturally because because my mother was an elementary school teacher, and 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 she actually studied to be an elementary school teacher as well. So so um. It, you know, it's all in the family, I guess you would
0: say. so. Right. And so you've been at, at Hillsdale in the education department since 2006. And, uh, I'm going to brag a little bit on you and I guess a little bit on myself too. humble, humble, humble brag. So one of my favorite classes ever, um, at at Hillsdale was, was your, your, your grammar class, um, which I think you still teach, right? English grammar. Mm -hmm. I think at the point that I taught this morning, yeah, it was a yep. one credit yep. class. And then I think after I took it, it was a three credit class. And I think I asked you if I'm I sorry. could take it again for three credits. And you, <laughs> right. you thought that there's no need. But um I loved it. And as a as a non non-native uh speaker, I, I mm-hmm. felt like I actually had an advantage over the students, the American students mm-hmm. in the class, that many of them really didn't know grammar, which was yeah. kind of sad. Um I had a pretty thick accent at the point, uh, uh, right. but but I knew I knew my grammar. And so um it is such a popular class at Hillsdale, but it seems mm. to be the exception, and 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 mm. we we seem to be told by society, culture, whatever that mm. grammar is not really important anymore, right? Who needs grammar and when you have Grammarly mm. that could you know that could that could right. edit your your writing? So, uh, can you give us a little defense for for the 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 the, the direct instruction uh, and the direct teaching of grammar?
1: Yeah. It- It's really fascinating because um, you know here at Hillsdale College, uh, you know we attract some pretty talented, you know, uh, you know students here. You you know they can speak well, you know they can write well. Of course, over their time here, they improve, you know, in both of those areas and others. Um, But I'm just struck how many, uh, you know, American students, even the kind of students that we attract here, have not been taught English grammar. and if they learned explicit grammar if they understand what a transitive verb is what a participle is um what the nominative absolute is they probably learned it in another language and and then the, um one of the most interesting things in the class is when i introduce you know the subjunctive to the class and and it's it's really really interesting because a lot of my students will have heard of the subjunctive when they were studying Spanish or French or something like that, and they, oh, we have the subjunctive in the English language as well. And so, you know, that's really, really fun to be able to kind of peel back the language. Um, I think it is important and and it's very easy to kind of rush into to the useful argument or the utilitarian argument that if you understand how the language works, you're going to be able to use the language more effectively when you speak and write. And you're going to be able to manipulate it, uh, move it around for rhetorical purposes. And so that clearly is important. Um, And and I make that case, I actually don't have to make that case too hard to our students. But what I do have to also do, which I think is actually a stronger argument, is that I want our students um, here at Hillsdale to be introduced to the structure of the English language, how it works. And I want them to recognize the beauty of the language and to recognize that there's amazing things going on in a language that many of us use use unnaturally. And we don't even realize just how, how complex it is, um, how historically informed it is, how it's informed by, you know, German. Um, I mean, it's a Germanic language. And so, you know, I often hear the argument, well, I studied Latin as a student. So you know I get English. Well, you're missing a lot of elements there that come from old English. And so I love being able to show um you know my students kind of in that taproot of language and old old English and then add on the layers of Latin and Greek um and French and, and Italian and Spanish that have all come together in 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 kind of modern English at today. And so, so yes, it's useful to study grammar. Yes, it's useful to study language, but I also want them to fall in love with language and, and to recognize the beauty of it as well. So, um,
0: and you converted me into a lover of <laughs> diagramming. I, I, yeah, I really wasn't, right. wasn't too, too familiar, even keen on it, but, uh, but I, I'm just wondering, I mean, I, 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 and you speak with a lot of schools now, of course you, mm-hmm. you work with a lot of the Hillsdale K-12, um, mm-hmm. uh, charter schools, many private schools. Do you know any, any public schools that are still using sentence diagramming?
1: Yeah, it's a good point. Um, let me make a point about sentence diagramming. I often hear from people, what, um, um, oh, you—you you know, this sentence diagramming—it it must be for, you know, for language people only. People who have a have a propensity for learning language. And I would actually make the opposite argument. I would say that people who are gifted in learning and understanding language may find diagramming useful. But the people who find it most useful are those people who maybe are not are not necessarily gifted in. Languages. I've had so many students come up to me and say, you know, for the first time in my life, uh, language makes sense to me. There's an order to it. There's a structure to it. And by being able to diagram those uh, sentences, you're able to have a visual representation of the relationship between these words within a sentence where when you see a line of text, it's just one word after another. And it's very hard to see what's the most important element of the sentence here and, and, and how does it relate to those other parts? Um, so, so it's very, very useful, but I would argue it's useful for those people who often struggle with our uh, languages. So then going to your point about schools, um, there's a great book called The War Against Grammar. And I may have pointed it out to you when you took the class um, it's a beautiful um, explanation um, about what happened to grammar um, within the curriculum. And it's a long story. Um, it got pushed out, um, um, as did Latin, um, out of the curriculum um, for a wide variety of reasons. Uh, uh, but in short, it was kind of countercultural to where education in America was heading. So um, you do find um, you know, sentence diagramming in classrooms you know, today in, in a traditional public schools and in private schools and charter schools, um, even in those schools where it's not part of the curriculum, you can still kind of find it in corners where, where individual teachers have recognized the utility and the value of actually doing a sentence diagram. And so they'll close their door and they'll, and they'll show their students actually how to diagram just because they recognize how useful it is for understanding, uh, you know, the language. So um, let me just, you know, add this. There are other ways of studying grammar and language, and you can actually study English grammar and grammar and other languages without doing diagramming. And there are plenty of books out there that will do it. But I still think, um, you know, that this technique um, is incredibly valuable for just having a visual representation of how language works. And so if you have that tool, I mean, it's like any tools, it's like a computer, it's like an overhead projector, it's like whatever, it's a tool, it's not, it's a means towards an end. And if that tool is going to be useful in helping students to be able to understand how language works, why wouldn't you use that tool?
0: Very well said. Much of your research focuses on on children's literature, and and I've mm. I've I've said in in several uh, lectures of yours, various summer conferences, where you, where you mm. discussed children's children's literature. When did you first, well, other than when you were a child, I guess reading yeah. reading those books. <laughs> when when did you first become uh, interested in in researching and learning more about about children's literature, and and what makes it so important today?
1: Yeah. So uh, um, I was not trained in literature um, as an undergrad uh, um, and even as a graduate student, I, I, you know, I was trained to be a linguist. I studied you know, languages and linguistics. Um, and, and yet uh, I think a lot of parents can resonate with this. Once you begin to have children, um, um, the idea of the best quality education becomes a very important concept to you and you want the best for your children. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, a couple of decades ago, um, um, uh, I read, you know, vegan Garoyan's book, uh, tending the heart of virtue, which is just a really powerful book about, uh, um, uh, you know, cultivating the moral imagination in children. And he makes a great case for, you know, the best way to cultivate the moral imagination is through story. And what's really interesting is is when I read that book and when I considered his ideas and others' ideas about the topic, including you know C. S. Lewis, G. K. Chesterton, J. R. Tolkien, these great uh, um, uh, you, you know storytellers and great writers. Um, when I began to consider their arguments for story, I I reflected back on my own education um, at the things that had stuck with me um, that had had really informed, you know, my character. And I can point back to individual stories when I was growing up um, and just how powerful those images were in, in a shaping my own character. And so the arguments I heard was resonating, um, you know, resonating with my own experience about the power of story. And so I just, I, I was just all in at that point. And so uh, um, I've been studying children's literature. I've been teaching children's literature, uh, you know for about 12 years now and um uh, and have just um really really enjoyed it
0: well I, I think sometimes we hear people say well it doesn't matter what kids read as long as they read and i mm. I, I I guess I understand the general sentiment behind that uh but I, I might disagree uh with that point and I'm gonna read a quotation Dr. Copeland I, I think I think it was in an article you wrote for the National Review, but um mm-hmm. I thought it was really powerful. I'd like you to comment on that. Um, And I quote, tales of fantasy and adventure are an inheritance that provides concrete images of goodness and evil, often in vivid black and whites, to the still receptive young minds of the young. Uh, Over time, these images become patterns, and the patterns become habits, and the habits become our way of looking at reality. Children need these sharp distinctions to navigate in a morally confusing world. And so... Are you saying that that these stories kind of plant seeds early on? That mm-hmm. at that point, maybe the children are not realizing yet, but later on, um, they they can point back to, and it, it shapes their moral imagination, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, we we would love to believe that that we make our moral choices, you, you know, based on reason and being able to you know, to logically come to the right conclusion. And, and, and I'm not trying to downplay that whatsoever. After all, um, you know, at Hillsdale College here, we have a required course in logic and rhetoric, and that is housed in the education department uh, here. And so I'm a strong believer of careful, analytical, logical reasoning um, um, through arguments and careful thinking. But what's really interesting is that as human beings, um, we are story-loving creatures. I believe that we have been created to love stories. Um, and when it comes to moral choices, yes, I hope we're going to use our our logical reasoning, but we're also led by our desires as well. And I mean, Plato has a lot to say about this, right? And 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 a, a lot of those desires have to do with the images that we have in our mind, the images of both goodness and and of evil. Um, um, And and I've seen that played out uh, many, many times uh, uh, um, across a lot of human lives. But I've also, again, being in the field of education, you almost have a laboratory in your own home. And I've seen that kind of a thing with my own children, that when they go to make a particular choice, they're not just rationally going through point by point, going through a syllogism or something like that. They're making choices you know, based upon their ideas of what is good and what is evil and how they're drawn to a particular character um, because of the way that he or she carries himself in the story. And they want to emulate that character, you know, based on those images. So what I often say is, you know, your your argument that you express, I know you don't necessarily agree with it, but, you know, you just want to get kids reading. Um, I mean, so it doesn't matter what they read. Well, um, you know, by way of analogy, you wouldn't talk about a child's diet the same way, right? So just be, well, you want to get them eating, so they'll eat candy. So just give them candy, um, candy once in a while is not a bad idea, right? But you don't want a steady diet of, uh, of that candy because it's not really going to, going to sustain them over a lifetime. It's not going to be able to give them the images that they're going to need eventually to be able to make those kinds of moral choices. So my argument is this, let, if we're going to give them stories, um, let's give them the best stories. Let's allow their, their images of good and evil to be shaped by the best characters that have ever been written. Um, And, and I think that comes through great story. You know, Wordsworth says uh, um, 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 uh, we will teach them or, or or, um, we will show them what they will love, and we will teach them how to love it. Um, And that's part of being a teacher about being a parent is actually presenting these, these great stories, and then showing them why they're so good. But oftentimes, with a great story, you don't even need to show them, because they automatically gravitate towards these very real human characters. Um, And it's just lovely to see.
0: I think as you told me before, and if, if, if they don't behave, you just tell them don't be an Edmund. Was that, was that what? Yeah, it was, yeah <laughs> that's right.
1: Yeah. Well, that comes from, from, from yeah, yeah, from personal experience. Um, um you know, my son, um, I'll quickly share the story. You know, my son was, was uh, teasing my daughter. And, um, and so I had him go to his room and I, I went down to his room and I had a conversation with him and I was explaining why teasing wasn't a good idea. And he just had this blank look on his face. And, In a moment of desperation, I said, Quinn, you're being an Edmund, uh, referring to Edmund from, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia. And immediately his reaction, he just went, and it just, that one name um, hit him in a way that all of my argument and exposition on the nature of teasing was not able to reach him. And in that moment, all those images of Edmund, you know, the traitor, um, Edmund, you, you know, the liar came flooding his mind. But at the same time, the images of of the older brother in that story, King Peter, um, who was his hero at that time, and he wanted to emulate Peter. He didn't want to be Edmund. And so that, that one name triggered images in his mind, and those images came from a great story, uh, you know, The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe.
0: Amazing. Thanks for sharing that. That gave me a good laugh. (laughs) Now, you were so kind as to send me, and I'll I'll show it in the camera, um, a a, a press release, a press advanced copy of your new book. Um, It's only about 90 pages long. It's called Tried and True, a Primer on Sound Education. And also through that book, I learned that it's primer, not primer. So I do appreciate your <laughs> right. kind of for the first page, uh, making sure we we pronounce it correctly. But mm. I think it's an absolute treasure. As a former teacher, um, I, I would say it's it's a must read for for all mm. new teachers. And it's not. Uh, we talked a little bit beforehand about some of the teacher books that are about five hundred pages with four hundred pages right. of examples. Um, can you give our listeners just a short synopsis of the book and 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 explain what what prompted you to write this primer?
1: Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that. So, so um, it's useful to explain what the model is. So, I I, I mean, a lot of people who have gone through college uh, probably have either been told by a professor or an instructor, or maybe out of desperation, have come across um, uh, you know the elements of style, uh, you know, by Strunk and White, oftentimes just known as Strunk and White, and it's about eighty to ninety pages or so about good composition. And at the very beginning in the introduction, they make you know, the claim that they're not trying to, to argue that if you read this book, you're going to be a great writer. But what they do is they give kind of a basic structure of, uh, of what is required of just good sound composition um, and, and just um, you know, specific kinds of, uh, uh, of, of advice on how to write clear and effective prose. And so that was kind of the model, um, you know, that I was trying to follow when I wrote Tried and True. Um, this is actually the product of, of a career in teaching. And if you read the introduction, you know, um, you know, the opening line of the book is, you know, my first year of teaching was rough because it was. Um, and, and even though I had taken quite a few education classes, I was unprepared for the classroom. And it was only through the mentoring that I received from a teacher who is actually just down the hall from me, um, you know, was I able to make it past that first year? Because I I say in the introduction, if I wouldn't have had that help, I probably wouldn't have made it past my first year of teaching. So this book actually started um, almost three decades ago with my own desperation as a teacher. But then over time, I've acquired, you know, some ideas about good teaching, both from reading research. And working and observing scores and scores of teachers in the classroom, um, but then also here at Hillsdale College we have a summer teacher trainings that we put on, and we have anywhere from four to six hundred teachers come here to campus. You know, um, at the end of June, and I put on you know, these uh, workshops that have to do with just good sound pedagogy, and so uh, taking the ideas from those workshops and the ideas that I had accumulated over the years. Um, I tried to put them in, in a slim volume um, um, that would help teachers who are, or people who are coming into the profession. Um, I think it can be useful for experienced teachers as well because um, uh, I think that as experienced teachers, we can begin to develop habits um, that help us, um, but don't necessarily serve the students. In other words, they, they're habits that help us as as educators to get through, you know, the school day, um, rather than we're doing these things because students are learning as a result of these activities. So I see tried and true as an effective way for an experienced teacher to kind of come back to the text and say, am I really doing, you know, the fundamentals? Am I doing the basics? Am I doing them well for the sake of my students? Um, Another reason why I kept it short was um, if you are a new teacher coming into a new job, you're already having to read a lot of curriculum and prepare lessons and units and and exams and all of those things. So you've already got a lot that you have to read, school policy manuals and all of that. The last thing you want to have is to have dropped on your lap a three to 500 page book, a how-to book. of a teaching. I thought it'd be a little bit more realistic if, if I, if I trimmed down the examples and just gave kind of the basics and that any teacher should be able to read it in about an hour or two, um, and get a sound understanding of what good teaching actually looks like.
0: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And you have, you have kind of 14, 14 small mm-hmm. chapters. Um, and I, I, think for, 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 our listeners that maybe have been in a classroom, maybe in a classical school, right? Maybe in mm-hmm. some Christian schools, they seem pretty commonsensical, right? Mm. They're like, "Well, yeah, that's well, right." Well, of course, but the reality is, it, it's it's mm. really not. It's it's tried and true, but it's often not practiced anymore. And 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 just from some of my experience in, in the public schools, there seems to be this tendency of you know the latest research you know published five minutes yeah. ago it gets implemented immediately. And some of these very sensible, I mean, I'm reading a few of them and maybe we can we can talk about two of the chapters a bit more in detail, you know, sure. follow the school's mission, lead the students, include parents regularly, plan lessons purposefully, begin and end lessons well, show and tell, ask good questions, assess students regularly, provide constructive feedback, right? Most mm-hmm. people that are here in that volume. Well, yes, that's that's something we should do. But let me let me um I want to ask you a couple of questions about chapters 4 and 5 which are related or yeah. they're uh, related to behavior. So number 4 is mm-hmm. define expected behavior and then yeah. chapter 5 enforces rules fairly. And I I'm on this platform called Twitter which I always regret after I log on, but but I feel like <laughs> almost daily do I see some example mm-hmm. some video from 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 classrooms they're just out of control the teacher being overwhelmed, you know, no, no, no behavior. Um, Talk to us a little bit about those two chapters and why you think, um, uh, you know, uh, behavior is such a, such a a key to good teaching.
1: Yes. Yeah. Thanks for that. um, Even though it's not identified in the table of contents nor anywhere in the book, the book is kind of divided up into what I would call the four M's. So you have the mission, which is number one management, number two. And then the methods, number three, and then measurement or or assessment is of the fourth. And, and I think that's actually a very useful tool to have the four M's when you're when you're watching another person teach, but when you're also evaluating your own teaching, am I teaching towards a mission? Am I able to manage the classroom? Uh, um, am I using you know the methods that will actually help my students learn? You know, the material there's another M. Um and, and MI uh, is is assessment or, or a measurement um occupying an appropriate role in my classroom. So you've identified number two there. And and uh, um, the reason why I started with with a mission is that I wanted to communicate the idea that everything in the school from the lunchroom to the drop-off policy to uh you know, to athletics, um, to even classroom instruction should be driven by the mission of the college. So you have to start with the mission. So that was going to be chapter one right off the bat. But it's interesting, once we establish that, I immediately go into management, which you keyed in on two very important chapters um, um, that have to do with being able to manage the classroom. So I often argue: if you can't manage your classroom, if you can't, you know, establish rules and routines for for appropriate behavior in your classroom, you're never going to be able to get to the methods. Because, uh, and if you're only focused on the methods and not actually managing the room, I would argue you're not really teaching. So, so um, it's interesting. Because I think that a lot of teachers, and I would argue that it mainly happens at the middle school and high school level, teachers make the mistake of assuming that children or students know how to behave in their classroom. And so that's why I wanted to make it um, explicit in the book that you are the authority in the room, whether you acknowledge it or not, everyone else acknowledges it, the school board, the administrator. The students even know you're the authority, so so you need to take that. You need to embrace that, and you need to be a good leader. Um, you don't need to be an aggressive leader, but you need to lead. And part of leading is laying out the expectations for students, not just in the in, in terms of content, in terms of assessment, but also in terms of behavior. The students are looking to you for you to identify, this is what I expect of you when you are in this classroom. This is how we're going to treat each other. This is how we're going to converse. And this is how we're going to get along. So laying that out beforehand, laying that out at the beginning of the school year, I often tell you our teachers, take the time early on to lay that out. Even if it means you covering less content um, in the first couple of weeks, establish those routines. Um, establish those rules, explain them, and then hold the students accountable. You're going to eventually gain that time back over the course of the year if you have managed the classroom well. But it's up to you as a teacher to then hold students accountable um, and show them um, how they are to behave and then hold them accountable for that behavior. And if you do that early on and, and you're faithful. That when the students begin to get off track, if you get them, you know, back on track and reteach and re rearticulate um, expected behavior, again over the course of the year, you're going to gain back time because you're not going to be constantly trying to to put out fires in the classroom of poor behavior and constantly try to get the students back on task. I, I, I honestly think I'm going to go back to this point. I honestly think that students. Um, want to know what's expected of them. Um, and the sooner and the clearer that you as a teacher's articulate what those expectations are, I almost feel like it's a relief to the students. Now I know what's expected of me. Now I know what, how I'm expected to behave. And now I can succeed and I can operate within this environment.
0: Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Dan. And I, I could not agree more from my own experience. And and I would even tell my department after each break, spend time mm-hmm. rearticulating reset. We know even after a week of spring break, kids forget things, right? Including <laughs> <laughs> including expectations. Um, but 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 I I think you're right. They're they're craving that now. There are some kids; that are gonna, you know, within those boundaries, right? But they want those boundaries, and they want yeah. you to enforce them. So um, I think it's also a call for teachers to to feel emboldened to to do that, and 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 not just, well, I'm, how my school is going to respond, students going to respond to it. Now, uh, right. I was blessed to be at a at a school where, where this was this came from the top down, right? Mm-hmm. So our principal would set these expectations, and yeah. the kids would have the consistency of those behavioral expectations. From mm-hmm. classroom to classroom, it must be a lot harder if you're say in a in a school that where maybe you're the only one. Um, do you yeah. have some advice for teachers that feel like you know maybe that it's not enforced across across the school and the kids look left and right and say, well, why do we only have to do that in in, in your class? Yeah,
1: yeah, that's a great question. So, what's interesting about that is is uh, you know that's why I begin with the mission uh, um, in. You know the first chapter is is make sure that you're teaching in a school that you you can buy into the mission of the school um, and 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 if there is um, um, kind of inconsistency, it probably goes back to the mission of the school. Someone is not following the mission of the school, or the mission of the school um, is not what it should be. Okay, so you know that said, um, I still think that even if you're not. Um, receiving that kind of uh, push or that kind of support from the administration uh, to manage your classroom well, uh, um, even if you're not getting that in an overt way, um, I still think that you will get it in in kind of an indirect way because of this. I I mean, school administrators' jobs are incredibly challenging, um, and, and they're trying to manage a school, and all that goes into that the last thing that they want to be doing is going from classroom to classroom trying to deal with problems and so the the management techniques that i articulate in tried and true um, are the kinds of things that that will help you to manage your classroom on your own without getting the administration involved so throughout the book i make a caveat that all of your policies should be consistent with with the policies of the school you don't want to create rules and routines that that are counter to the school's policy Uh, but oftentimes school administrators will allow teachers a certain amount of liberty and flexibility and freedom to to be able to manage you know that classroom well and again if the classroom is being managed well it means there's less of a likelihood that the administrator is gonna be brought in to have to deal with problems in the first place. And I wouldn't be surprised if you implement a lot of these, again, common sense, kind of a basic ideas about managing a classroom, how you may actually be able to win over people who are not giving you overt, you know, a direct uh, support. Um, you, you may actually be able to win them over and don't be surprised if those administrators start ha- having other teachers in the school especially younger teachers who are coming in come and observe your classroom and see how you manage that classroom so that's one of the privilege one of the privileges of, of kind of being a school teacher is that there's still something about the job that that the responsibility of the work is often left to a teacher in a classroom with students and so within that um within those boundaries, you're often able to structure your own kind of environment that you want for your classroom.
0: I'm happy to tell folks that the wait is finally over. I think, uh, <laughs> I think a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, students, a lot of teachers have been looking for Hillsdale to, to have a master's in, in education. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, it took you a while, but here we are. <laughs> um, yeah. and <laughs> so just, uh, uh, just last year, you announced uh, the creation of a new MA in classical education. And just a few weeks ago, you welcomed the first cohort of, I believe it was 11, 11 students yep. on yep, campus. Right. Um, tell our listeners a little bit about, about this, this program. Um, you know, it's a, it's a master's in classical education. Who is it for? What is, what mm. is covered? Um, um, yeah. Can you share, share a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, happy to do it. Uh, um, I'll give a little bit of a background in that. Um, you know, I, I arrived at Hillsdale in, in around 2006, and we had a traditional, you know, state-approved teacher certification program when we arrived, or you know, when I arrived here. And within a few years, we actually transitioned out of that. Um, um, we just decided that a lot of the schools that were interested in our graduates were interested in things other than state certification, so we moved away from that. And we kind of went all in on uh, on classical education. And we offered at that time around 2009 um, a minor in classical education. We don't have a major here at the undergraduate level because we want our students to pursue a particular uh, field of study and to be grounded in that field of study, whether it's English or biology or mathematics but then for those people who are interested, we offer this minor in classical education and it's been, it's been wildly popular here at Hillsdale College. Around that time, um, around 2010, 2012, we began to talk about the idea of having a graduate degree in classical education. Part of that was you know, the fact that we at Hillsdale were, were, were beginning to help local communities open up schools um, and we quickly recognized that the one of the greatest hurdles to being able to open up schools was that we didn't have enough people to be able to do it, uh, specifically leaders. And I don't necessarily mean just you know, heads of school or principals, but leadership at every level, so academic deans, you know, like department heads, lead teachers. And we recognized that if we wanted to see these, these academically rich uh, schools continue to open, that we were going to have to be involved in cultivating leaders for those kinds of schools. And so we worked on it for quite a few years. Um, we came up with the curriculum, um, um, what we wanted. And so um, uh, about a year ago, um, we, we began to recruit a cohort of, uh, of our students. And our program, let me tell you a little bit about the program. It's um, uh, a 36 credit hour r- residential Master of Arts in Classical Education program. It's a it's uh, a two year program, and so we only welcome students in in the fall of the year. Um, in the first year, um, our students take um, a variety of classes, but primarily in um, actually they take their classes as a cohort all together and their courses in history of liberal education, the history of American education, uh, you know, philosophy of education, and then also what we call humane letters. And so it's an opportunity to spend a year kind of marinating in great works of, of history, literature, and philosophy. Then in the second year of the program, we offer a wide variety of classes. We only have one real required class, and that is the curriculum, and pedagogy of classical education. And then we offer a wide variety of elective classes, depending on your interests. So we offer a course in education leadership, one in school administration. Um, we offer a class in the trivium, uh, you know, the three language arts, a class in the quadrivium. And then we offer a wide variety of elective classes that we call special topics classes. So um, we give students an opportunity to do of a deep dive into a particular author or an idea or a period, all relating to the field of education. Um, And so uh, um, it has become uh, uh, quite a popular program. Um, One uh, kind of additional element I need to add is that, you know, thanks, you know, to the generous uh, donors and friends of the college, uh, the entire program for all, all admitted students is tuition free. And so a student can come here to Hillsdale, earn a master's degree and not pay even a penny in, in a tuition. In addition, every student who is admitted to the program um, uh, 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 automatically qualifies for a graduate researcher uh, uh, an assistantship that comes with, you know, a modest uh, stipend to help students, um, you, you know, pay for living expenses. So, um, um, it's a great investment, you, you know, the college has put a lot of time, energy and resources towards this, uh, but we think it's really important. And the schools that we want to see continue, you know, to flourish, it's only going to depend on the kinds of people that we can encourage to invest their lives, um, in their vocations. In. And so we, as a college are going to be involved in that work because we think it's in, it, it's an important work and it's an essential work. It really is. So
0: and it's yeah, and it's timely. I mean, the the, the mm-hmm. especially since COVID, I mean, just an explosion of of class new classical schools opening and they can't keep up yeah. with the demands. And so that's right. Um I'm 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 excited. I know it's only eleven, but that's just the beginning. And so um yeah. we're really, really excited for, for this program. Mm-hmm. Um last question, um, my favorite one. Um, and oftentimes considered the most difficult one because you have to pick one um, yeah. <laughs> what is what is one book or one text <sighs> that has impacted your life the most and why?
1: Yeah yeah that's a um, I'm a great question and and, and and I think the easy and, and the obvious answer for me you know, would be the Bible. so let's just put that one off to the side and 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 and, um, and just know you know that that is truly the good book, the greatest book. Um, uh, I'm tempted to go with Mere Christianity just because uh, of the way that that has shaped, you know, my life. And and in fact, I would argue C.S. Lewis in general uh, uh, has really shaped my life through the abolition of man, uh, but also through his his, uh, literature um, as well. You know, that Hideous Strength is a great book. Um, I'm really, really partial to the Chronicles of Narnia, um, but I'm not going to choose any of those books. And I'm going to choose... You know, The Wind in the Willows, um, uh, an absolute uh, you know, favorite book of mine. I think that, you know, I have learned how to be, um, hopefully, uh, I, I've learned how to be a good friend, you know, through the friends I have had in my life um, and in the interactions. And they have taught me how to be a good friend. Uh, but there's no other book uh, you know, that I have encountered in terms of a text, an actual text like The Wind in the Willows, it is almost um, almost a treatise on human friendship, even though, I mean, it's talking about, you know, I mean, a badger, a rat, a toad, um, and a mole, but it's really about human friendship. Um, and it's an amazing text. Um, I teach classic children's literature um, and I teach a wide variety uh, of a great children's works in that class, but I always save The Wind in the Willows um, to the end of the semester and I tell my students if you can make it through this class you get dessert at the end um, because it is it is truly a treasure and I've had a number of students come away from you know that class and and actually come back to me years later and just uh, tell me how you know the wind in the willows has actually shaped their own life so so that book um you know that story holds a really special place in my heart.
0: Oh, that's. I think that's a first. I don't think we've heard, heard that one yet. So I, I really, Dr. Copeland. I don't know a single person that doesn't light up when they hear your name. Um, you are you are a treasure. You are a, an amazing professor and a and a wonderful wonderful friend. And I'm so glad that you were able to join us again. We're here with Dr. Daniel Copeland, the Dean of the Graduate School of Classical Education, Chairman of the Education Department, and a Professor of Education at Hillsdale College. Dan, what a treat! Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, Soren
1: thanks for listening to this episode of anchored if you enjoyed it be sure to subscribe and share it with your friends and colleagues thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time